am moved without a shadow of a doubt. Now, can you imagine what it might have been like if I had gotten up here and I had said to you, we're going to watch a video now. I hope that it moves you. I hope it stirs you. I hope it inspires you. And then we played that same video, except we left all the words out, right? There was no words in the background speaking and there were no words on the screen. It was just the visuals with that background music playing, doom, 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 playing in the background. And when I got up here and we were done with that video and I said, man, wasn't that inspiring? I think all of you would look at me and go, are you out of your mind? I mean, that, what, what on earth just happened? I have heard that same speech done without visuals, without music in the background, without anything, and it is equally as inspiring. I, the first time I heard that, it was just the words, nothing else. And man, it was moving in every way because words are incredibly powerful. They just are. They are incredibly powerful. Words come out of our mouths. They connect with our minds. They stir images in our minds that connect with our hearts. They stir feelings in our hearts. And then they connect with our soul. And our soul is moved and stirred. That is what words do. That is the power of words. Words have the power to awaken our soul and they have the power to destroy our soul. They just do. All of you here have experienced at different times in your life when words have moved your soul to feel dark and dead or moved your soul to feel awakened and alive. And you just experienced it now when you listened to those words. Of all of the authors in Scripture that write about the power of words, and there are a lot of them, it's all over Scripture, I think there is no author that more dramatically unpacks for us the power of words than James, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem during the early New Testament church, who was writing a letter to the whole church, the 12 tribes scattered among uh, the, the known world because of high persecution, as he was trying to inspire them and trying to give them hope and give them direction as a leader in the time where they faced great persecution and great discouragement, frankly, as they were watching circumstances around them. James writes to this church to say, hey, hang in there, stay on point, keep the course, stay on mission. And he writes about words in that letter in more flowery language and more dramatic style than any other author in Scripture writes about words. I mean, when you read James's account about words, you almost are tempted to say, come on. I mean, could you overdo it anymore? But what you will find as we travel into this is that James isn't overdoing it at all. He is leaving us with a sober view of what these little things are we call words and the power that they hold and what we are called to as a result. So grab your Bibles and would you turn with me to the book of James the letter that James is writing to the early church in the book of Acts. We are going to be in James chapter 3, right in the middle of the letter on page 655 of the Bibles that we provide for you if you grabbed one of those. So page 655 or James chapter 3, uh, take a look at what he says here. This is how James launches out of the gates on the issue of words. Verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. That's where James begins. So he starts out the gates by just presenting this reality that words matter more than we think they do. In fact, he uses the example and says, you know, words that we see used in power a lot are words when a teacher is teaching. And so he says, um, you shouldn't even want to be a teacher, okay? Because here's why. Your words matter so much that God is actually judging words as they play out. That's how much these little things matter. And if you're going to be a teacher, he's going to judge that even more because the words hold authority then, so they hold an even greater power. So be real, real cautious. And here's why he says, he doesn't say, don't want to be a teacher because God will judge you more strictly. This is actually what he says. Here's why you shouldn't want to be a teacher, okay? Because any man, listen to this now, any man who has learned to control his words well has learned to control his entire self well. That's crazy. He says, if you're good with your words and in control of them all the time, you're perfect. You're perfect. Because what that means is, what's coming out of here is coming from a place that you have so under control that you are the perfect man. So he says this, if you want to be a teacher, that's kind of the deal, right? If you're perfect, you'll control these, and who's perfect? So you, you got to watch out. you got to watch out. See, in the very first sentence, James connects multiple thoughts. Words are powerful, words matter to God, and, listen now, words come from deep inside. Okay, they're not just coming from right here. This is not where the control happens. It comes from here. So if you got these under control, man, you got all this under control. And, and who has all this under control? So he launches right out the bat saying, words matter to God. Now, he shows us, now listen carefully. What he's about to do is he's about to instill in us a sober view of words. And hopefully, what I think he's trying to do is scare us to death about our words. Uh, honestly, when we read this, you'll start going, yes, you should basically grow in fear as we read about your words. By the time we're done, you should be like this. Never speak again. I will never speak again. That's how we should feel when we're done with this. This is what James' intent is. Take a look. Look what he says. He says in verse 3, If we put into, I mean, bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide the whole body as well. Look at ships also. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder whenever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So here's what he's beginning to set the pace for. He's beginning to say that I, James, am going to show you that your words have the power to direct the entire story. A big ship. How are you going to move the big ship? Easy. Teeny rudder. A big horse. You're going to kick it. It kicks back, okay? No, no. You put a little thing in its mouth, pull on a little string, and the horse will go wherever you want. And he says the tongue is like a rudder and like a bit in the mouth. Where the tongue takes you, you go. Did you hear that? He's not saying oh, the tongue gives you control over the whole body. It's like, no, the tongue's in control. That's a big deal. He's starting to give us this sense that what's coming out of here is setting a pace for everything. So this ought to be a very important little space for us. What's coming out of here? Look, as though he now wants to take the picture and go, okay, maybe I'm not getting through with the horse and the ship thing. Let me take this a step further. Visualize. Ready? 
How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. He puts us right into Bambi, right? You've watched Bambi. And he went, ding, ding. Oh, look at little Bambi. Little bunnies and rabbits. And look, there's the birds. Oh, oh, there's a fire. There's a fire. Bambi's scared. Birds are flying away. People dying, right? I mean, that's what he's doing here. He's saying, think of a nice forest. Look, look how beautiful it is. Now, put a spark in it and light a tree on fire. And the fire moves with the wind and everybody dies. So we're like, okay, wow, that's, that's a... That's a dramatic picture. We, we got it. A fire blazing a forest. And the tongue is a fire. Whoa. Whoa, you see where he's going? The tongue is a fire. Listen to this. A world of unrighteousness. You like this language? I'm starting to get a little scared. This thing right here in my mouth forming words right now, it is a world of unrighteousness. He's not even saying it has some unrighteousness. He goes, it's like its own city of unrighteousness. An entire planet of horror is right here in your mouth. It is a world of unrighteousness, and it is like a fire. It comes out like a fire and just wants to kill everything in its path. That's what he's beginning to say. Look at this. Oh, he doesn't stop. You think he's done? The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. The tongue is affecting the whole story. Oh no, he's not done yet. Setting on fire the entire course of life. So he's saying your tongue, your words are actually setting on fire your destiny, your future, your entire story and burning it to the ground. I mean, at a certain point, you all ought to be going, I'm scared. I mean, my entire future is sitting inside my mouth with fire that's coming out. That is an entire world of unrighteousness waiting to set ablaze my future and burn it to the ground. Oh, and he's not done. I'm sorry. (laughs) He's not done. He wants to make sure he nails this to the ground. Here he goes. Watch this. Watch this. And the fire that is the tongue is on fire by hell itself. So he goes, okay, here's the deal. Your tongue, the words come out of your mouths. It is an entire world of unrighteousness, a fire set ablaze to blaze your life to death. And guess who's lighting the words on fire? Hell is. Hell. Your enemy, the demons, the horrors, they're lighting your words on fire and burning your life to the ground. I mean, are are you kind of sitting there going, what if I don't speak? Well, you're safer. And now James says this, look. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I mean, wow! He's basically saying this. If it's not enough that the tongue is a fire that wants to burn your world to death, it's not enough that the tongue is like a a dart, like a spear coming and puncturing you so that you'll bleed out. If none of that happens, don't worry. It's a poison dart. So once it's burned you and punctured you and you're bleeding, it's got poison. If you're not dead yet, the poison will kill you. And that's what he's just written. You can't tame the tongue. You can't hold the tongue. Go tame a blue whale. That's easier. That's what he's saying. Find a tiger and go tame that. That's doable. But you're not taming the tongue. The tongue is dangerous. I have four boys in my house. 
and four girls, and my four boys are coming of age now where they are realizing that they were designed to be warriors. And so warriors are fighters, but warriors need weapons. They've watched the cartoons. They know how it works, so they want weapons now. So as they're growing into age, you start having the conversations about, uh, can I have a pocket knife, and, and then can I have a bone arrow, and then can I have a gun, and then can I have a machete, and then, and, and so it just kind of builds. The knives get bigger, the guns get bigger, and the bone arrow get bigger and sharper with tips on them. And so uh, you have a choice as a parent, right? Uh, you can either say, uh, no, we don't do weapons in our house, to which the boys will say, okay, go outside. They will find sticks and rocks and cats and birds and turn them into weapons. And then they will use them against one another with no training and no rules because they're just weapons they made. And they will kill each other and kill people. And so what you do is you go, a, a better plan might be to give them the weapons, but to have a great deal amount of rules about these weapons. And so my boys, as they grow, that's the path we've chosen. Uh, we, at certain ages, when they reach appropriate spaces of trust, we hand them certain weapons. So it starts with the pocket knife. And you know, it's the little mosaic knife we handed out a couple years ago. It's like, think. It's like, I mean, you could stab a gnat with this and it wouldn't kill it, right? But it's a pocket knife. It feels good. And so you give them the pocket knife. You're like, here's a pocket knife for you. But then you have the big speech, right? the big speech. I am handing you a weapon of mass destruction. This pocket knife can slice people's heads off. You can never, ever, 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 ever open this knife in the presence of another human being. You can never throw it as a weapon. You can never threaten any living thing with it. And if you ever do, I will take it from you. You will never have another weapon in the rest of your life and you will not be a man. So, you know, you do the speech thing and you're like, are we clear? Danger, danger, danger. And then the very first time the knife is opened, in some setting it shouldn't be, up, oh, give it to me, six months, done. Please, give me another chance. No, this thing kills. You don't get second chances with killing machines. And if you handle that weapon well, you get a few more. You, the knives get bigger if you show me that you can handle these things. We do this because weapons are dangerous. Uh, for my 16-year-old son's birthday, he got a dartboard uh, this last birthday, just a few weeks ago. And we, you know, we bought the dartboard that has the, the real darts, but with the real plastic tips, you know? They're not like the kids' darts. They are real. I mean, there's plastic tips. You hit someone with that thing, it could actually puncture the skin slightly. It's not going to kill a human being, but it certainly could hurt. Probably won't puncture, but might. So it's sharp enough. So we get that. And because they weren't the metal-tipped darts, and because we have eight kids and we're really busy, we didn't necessarily think to go over the rules with them about the dartboard, right? So just basic stuff like don't throw at other human beings. And so um, we, uh, I, I noticed uh, the second day in our playroom, the dartboard was precariously stuck up against the couch or, or on the back of the couch and against the wall and the, the boys were playing darts uh, that way. And so I had this inkling in my head like that just something feels wrong about that, but I, I, you know, I've got lots going on, so I left it alone. And then the next day, uh, to nobody's surprise, I heard my 10-year-old daughter scream bloody murder from the playroom. <laughs> And I'm like, what? And I'm run downstairs. And she runs. And I'm like, what happened? I'm like, what happened? And one of the boys goes, she got hit by a dart. 
So I'm like, what? So it didn't puncture the skin, but it apparently hurt a lot. And so I, I go downstairs and I'm like, how? I don't understand. How? How did a dart hit a child? I mean, this is, and then it suddenly starts dawning me. Didn't go over the rules. You didn't go over the rules. And like, oh, this is going to get bad. And this is what happened. She was sitting on the couch. She was sitting on the couch reading a book. And the boys are like, yeah, darts, yeah, darts. So I go, what, 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 what are you thinking? And this is their answer. One of my boys goes, we were aiming at the dartboard. <laughs> How many times have you missed a dartboard in the last day? There's a child next to the dartboard. She's human. She's human. You don't throw sharp things at humans. We've gone over this. And so you start realizing that the, the darts, you have to have rules with the darts because they're weapons. And so I went over the rules. Never throw a dart unless everyone's behind you. Never, ever use them in this way. Never touch them in that way. If you ever do, the dartboard's going away. <laughs> now, my boys also play dodgeball at uh, Sky Zone. They love dodgeball at Sky Zone. They got these big red dodgeballs that they toss, and they hurl these things at other human beings. I don't know if you've ever seen this, man, but I mean, they hurl them, right? So, I mean, it's just like, and there's bigger kids playing dodgeball too. So, on occasion, one of my kids comes out of the dodgeball court, and they're crying. I'm like, what happened? I already know. Like, the dodgeball hit me in the face. You know what I do then? I look at my son, and I go, grow up. Go back in the game. It's a dodgeball for crying out loud. It's soft and squishy. It stings a bit. It's designed not to hurt you. But he was really big when he threw it. I could throw it at you point blank range and you won't bleed. See, a dodgeball, I don't look at the dodgeballs and go, I got to go over a boatload of rules because the thing could kill my ch kid. No, the dodgeball can't hurt you. And what James is trying to do here right off the bat is say, guys, we handle our words like they're dodgeballs. We throw them around like they don't hurt anybody and they can't do anything. Ah, they'll come back around and it's okay. They sting a bit once in a while, but you just say, grow up. It's a dodgeball. But James is saying, no, no, no. If that's how you're handling words, bad idea. It's not a dodgeball. These words are poison-tipped spears that are on fire meant to kill people. If I handed my son a spear that was on fire with poison on its tip, sharp as can be, and it said, kill other people on it, I think I'd have rules. You know what I'm saying? I feel like God should have come to us and said this. People, I'm going to give you this thing called words. They're extremely dangerous and powerful. If you ever point them at another human being, if you ever use them outside of their rules, if you ever do anything with them that you shouldn't do, I'm taking them from you for six months. And then every time we set a word out of place that wasn't glorifying God, sharing the gospel, or building somebody else up, I think God should come and take them for six months and go, eh, they're mine now. You can't speak for six months. You know what we would have? We would live on a completely silent planet. No doubt about it. It would be dead silent. And every six months, there would be a brief noise as the first human beings speak out words of horror at which God will just take them again and we'd have another six months of silence. But what James is saying is, guys, this is words. If you've been handling your words like they're nothing, it's a big, big deal. And then James actually writes for us in everyday real life. Now he's done the big fire thing and he's like, they're poisonous, they're deadly, they're unrighteous, they're horrid, they kill. But it's, it's, it's all pictures. Now he brings it down to everyday life. He says, look, I'll show you how they actually work. Take a look. He says here um, in verse nine, with it, the tongue, that is our words, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, 
and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessings and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. See, James is saying, the way the words play out in everyday life isn't actually like fire and poisonous darts coming out. What it is is us blessing and cursing in the same space of time, producing life and death in the same deal. I watch this in my house all the time. We have 10 people in our house that live together and they're close enough in age that they were designed to try to uh, vie for position and kill the other seven. So basically every one of the eight are trying to figure out how to get rid of the other seven and be king of the world. And so in subtle ways. That's kind of what we deal with. And then Brooke and I really want to be king and queen, and so we're just trying to figure out how to uh, make them all into nice little lined up uh, things that we can say, go here and do this and, and don't speak. That way we can rule, right? So in its deepest essence, sometimes that's what it feels like in a home. So there's a lot of conflict that goes on. And in that conflict, several of my children uh, live on an edge. They live on an edge where there's a switch that you can switch in them where they just completely crumble and break down. And we've learned where those edges are. And so it's important to manage relational dynamics in our home so we never cross that edge because then we got a 45-minute recovery zone on the other end to try to bring them back from the darkness, right? So... At night, when it's bedtime, this is never a really good time because everybody's a little tired and a little edgy and it's been a long day. And so at bedtime, we try to keep things as simple as possible. And this week, one of my uh, beautiful young children was on the couch and it was time to turn the movie off. And I said, okay guys, time to go to bed. And, and this child answered, I don't really want to. And I said, well, <laughs> that's not the way the answers work in my house. And so I said, well, I, I don't really care if you want to. I'm not asking. I'm saying it's bedtime, to which uh, this child said, I, I don't want to. And it wasn't even so much a defiance as much as it was just kind of a statement of fact. And so I'm like, well, I don't care. Get up and go. And then it was, uh, and then I was like, don't talk to me like that. And then it was like, uh, and I could feel it. I was like, oh, stop, stop right here. It's going to go dead. It's going to go dead. The poison does. And, and then I, I spoke in anger. My tone changed. And as soon as that happened, there was the crash. Then the crash came back in massive anger. And there was the running by. I don't care. I hate this family. I hate this day. Right? Which is pretty common in our house. So that goes on up there. So to which I go, I'm going after this because in my house if there's a conflict we deal with it right away we take it by the horns we overcome it you don't let people isolate for two seconds in my house to which most of you are going this guy's an idiot I get it I understand there needs to be space but I go upstairs I want to take care of this I go in the door shuts as I'm coming around the corner and locks which when a child shuts and locks a door that's like a, a statement of power and authority that I'm like no so I walk up the door and gently go Sweetheart, would you open the door? No. I go, open this door right now. To which my wife comes around the corner and goes, you, you should go. To which I go, I got this, which basically means I don't got this. And I hear the escalation in the room increase because now there is that whole like anger, fear, madness stuff going on in there. And for once in my life, I'm like, I'm just going to go downstairs and take a moment. So I go downstairs to walk. Brooke goes into the room. And she's working with this child and, and I'm downstairs and I'm preparing for this message. 
You understand? If you think my preparation during the week is for you, it's not. It's God speaks to me, tells me all the junk I got to pay attention to, writes all sorts of stuff, does stuff in me, and then he says, since I had to do this in you, you may as well tell some other people. That's kind of how it works for me. So I'm downstairs and it's like, how the word's working out for you? It's going well? I'm like, no, it's like a nuclear weapon, like a, a weapon of mass destruction. The words are killing everything. And so God goes, well, go, go change the words. And I'm like, I don't want to. He's like, I know, but you're going to. And so I'm like, okay, well, let me see. Let me just see. So I go upstairs. As I come around the corner, my wife is coming out of the room, and she looks at me, and she goes, don't, don't go in there. It's not a good time, which basically means it's really bad, darkness. But there was something in my heart, and I said to her, I'm just going to be in there for a second. I just got to do something. I'm not going to engage. I walk into the room. I walk around the bed. My child is laying on the floor. I can see it's, it's a dark place. And I just, I just say this one thing. I said, hey, honey, I am so, so sorry that I got angry. I shouldn't have. I am so so sorry. That's all I said. And I turned around to walk out of the room. And as a parent, you know this moment where the cry of a child turns from a mad cry to a broken cry. You've heard it. It's a subtle shift, but it's very clear to a parent's ear where the child has moved from being an attacker to being a defenseless, defenseless and scared little, little child. And so I heard the cry switch and I knew in that instant that those words had brought life. They had brought life into a, a situation that words just a few minutes ago had brought death to. And so I engaged immediately and within two minutes, no joke, within two minutes, the entire darkness lifted. We settled down quickly. We were back in the game. She went out, brushed her teeth. It was awesome. Two minutes, it usually takes 45. And, and there, this is what James is saying. Guys, you know how this works. You've watched in a 10-minute period of time words that can bring curses and death and words that can bring life and light in the same 10-minute space. This is the power of our words. This is what words do. This is how they work. So <laughs> words matter, right? Words matter. So what do we do about that? Well, we leave here, all of us, and what should you do? Well, just start changing your words. Just start speaking nice stuff instead of mean stuff. Start speaking uh, uh, loving words and kind words and building up words and God-glorifying words and gospel words. Do that. I mean, that seems simple enough, doesn't it? I mean, that's not hard. Just change your words. Okay, well, that's great, you say, just like me. I'm like, I could do that. Problem is, when I open this thing, they don't come out the way I changed them. They keep coming out the other way. Why is that? Why do our words come out so difficultly? Why is it so hard to just switch our words if, if this is so easy? Well, because, as James has shown us so clearly, our words aren't coming from our mouths. This, when a word comes out of your mouth, that's not where it started. That's not its source. The words came from somewhere else and they moved into your tongue and your tongue shaped them and sent them out. Your tongue is the tool by which you can create the death. But the words came from somewhere else. Where did they come from? Well, James says, if you have your tongue under control, you have everything under control. So the tongue, the words must be coming from somewhere else. Well, Jesus clued us into this, among others. Jesus in the book of Luke 
Luke is recording Jesus' words in a parable, and this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Now, the context of this parable isn't saying that if you're doing bad things, if you're saying bad things, you're evil, and if you're saying good things, you're good. That's not it. So the context of this parable is different, so don't start going, oh, my words have been really bad. I must be evil. No. Or I have great words. I must be really good. No, no, neither of those are true. Um, But here is what Jesus does say that is important to understand about the connection of our words and our hearts. Look at this, the end of that verse. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the uh, overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That means that what James is showing us here is that the words that are so deadly, we need to be extremely watchful over them. We need to treat them like poison-tipped, fiery spears that have kill other people written all over them. That's how we ought to treat our words, very cautiously. But the words are not where the problem starts. The problem starts in the heart because whatever is in the heart and overflowing out of the heart is gonna come out of the mouth. So you need to, if you're gonna be watchful over your words, also become a great guardian of the heart. You have to guard your heart and watch your words. Both have to work hand in hand so that you are constantly going, guarding the heart, watching the words. Guarding the heart, watching the words. Because if you watch your words but don't guard your heart, your words are gonna be horrid. And if you guard your heart, but you don't watch your words, lots is going to slip through. So James is saying, watch your words, guard your hearts. Solomon knew this. He wrote in the Proverbs this incredible verse, above all else, above everything else you will ever do in your entire life, above all else, guard your hearts, or your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It's where life comes from. So where our heart is, that's where our words come from. If we are angry, we will have angry words. If we are hurt, we will have hurtful words. If we are bitter, we will have bitter words. If we are overwhelmed, we will have depressed and discouraging words. If we hate ourselves, we will have hateful words. And so our words become an end point, not a beginning point. They become a window into our souls and we get to use our words as a thermometer to say if they come out this way, then there must be some work down here I need to do. There is disbelief in my heart. There is discouragement in my heart. There is a miss here that the gospel can remedy, that the spirit of God can fix, but I need to go back down there and I need to deal with what's in here because until this is dealt with, this will remain what it is. And when this overflow is gospel, then this will be gospel. When this overflow is self, then this will be self. And so we must deal here. And so James says, do that. Other scriptures say the same thing, right? I mean, Paul writes in Ephesians uh, 4.29, let no talk come out of your mouth ever unless it is for the building up of others according to their needs for their good. Ever. You should never speak unless it's for the good of others. Uh, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, he says, whenever you get together in community, uh, admonish and teach one another, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, giving thanks to God. What we discover is that our words were given to us with a purpose. The reason God gave them to us is not so that we could use them to kill people. He gave them to us so that we could honor him, in other words, glorify God with our words, that we could speak the gospel realities to one another daily, and that we could build others up. That's what our words are for. They can be used for horrid things but they are for the power of the gospel and the glorification of God and the building up of the people. And so that's what our words are for. 
So we could stop here, we could. We could stop right here and say, that's phenomenal, James, thank you so much. This letter makes total sense here in terms of what you're saying about words. If we pull this out like a proverb and just say, James had some wisdom for us, that's great. We could stop there. But the real power in this particular passage is found on one level deeper. Because what fascinated me about this passage was the placement, the timing of this. You see, James is spending an entire chapter on words in a very short letter. And who is he sending this letter to? He's sending this letter to the the early New Testament church in the book of Acts, right after James, the brother of John, has just been beheaded by Herod, and he was one of the apostles. So there was this understanding, I think, in the early church that the apostles seemed at least to be protected supernaturally. Whenever they were arrested or taken, God would protect them. James goes into Herod's lair and we're expecting James to walk back out again and James never comes out, he's beheaded. And so Peter is taken prison the same time because even Herod was kind of shocked. Oh, God didn't protect James, let's take Peter down. Peter goes into prison, he comes out supernaturally, goes to the church and he's like this, shh, everybody quiet. He doesn't boldly preach the next day at the synagogue. He tells them, quiet down. Get this note to James, the half-brother of Jesus in Jerusalem, as quickly as you can. He needs to know what's going on here. This isn't good. I'm going underground for a while. I mean, that's the tone you get from this passage in the book of Acts. There is this tone of discouragement that suddenly things are moving heavily toward us in enemy. No one's giving up yet, but you know how you feel when you're in that moment where suddenly everything's bigger than you thought it was and it feels crushing. You start asking big questions. Questions. What do we do? What should we do? How do we move forward? And James is writing a letter to that church to inspire them, to, to, to give them a speech of movement forward. This is the war speech, folks. This is James on the horse, you know, in Braveheart, as they're standing ready to attack the enemy. He's like, men, hold your ground. Men, remember, we live for freedom. You know, I mean, th- those are the war speeches you, you look for. Can you imagine Braveheart? Watch your words. Everybody watch your words. They matter. Watch your words. No. See, that's what was weird to me about this. Is if you're going to write a speech about getting ready to go to war, why spend in a half the letter on words? I mean, I get the word thing. It's very important, but you do that after the war, right? Everything's settled down. You gather in a building like this, and you go, okay, guys, no more war now. Let's talk about some other important things. Words, they really matter. Good, excellent, check. But James, in the middle of a war speech, goes, I want to talk with you about words for a little bit and their power and their might. And so I thought to myself, why, James? Why here? Spirit of God, why here? Why to this church? Why at this time? And then it dawned on me as I was trying to figure out why words matter in the middle of mission, in the middle of difficulty and struggle, it suddenly dawned on me. See, we actually see it all the time, don't we? When is it that we find ourselves throwing words around less cautiously than usual? Well, whenever things around us are changing, right? And especially when they're changing in a way we're not so certain is the right way. In our American church context, we see it all the time. We uh, make a decision as a leadership to move in this direction or do that or add this to the church or take this thing away from the church. And what happens? It's the talk. You know, we talk about this. It's the talk. It's this. It's like, hey, come over here for a second. What do you think about that? I don't know, man. I don't like it. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with it. Don't get me wrong. I, lo- I love Jesus and I trust the Spirit, but I'm a little weirded out. What about you? Are you weirded out? I'm weirded out. You know, we're both weirded out. That's concerning. Let's go find somebody else. Hey, are you weirded out? 
I'm a little weirded out. I wasn't, but now that you say that, now I am. Good, well, let's be weirded out together. Come, let's gather. See, do you see that? Do you see what words do? And that's not in a missional setting. That's not in high pressure. That's not with big things happening on the outside. That's not staring into the face of the black gates and the great enemy. That's just when we tweak things, right? That's when we tweak things. So James is saying, listen, listen, you've watched this happen In a setting of war as a unified force, what is the greatest danger of a group of people going to war? That somewhere in the battle, one of them would give up and run away. And then that would cause another person to go, he's running, I'm running. And then five of them go, and then it's this talk. That army looks really big, man. I mean, Braveheart's insane. This isn't a movie. We're really going to die. You know, it's all that stuff starts happening. And then the speech doesn't play out and the talk. And before you know it, they're all heading home with their pitchforks because they're like, no. See, we talked. And then that broke us down. And we see this all the time. I have, I've watched churches sunk on words. On words. So here's what James is saying. When we are going to war, when we are facing an enemy bigger than we imagined, the gates of hell itself, when we are discouraged and we're overwhelmed by what we're facing, don't think for one second that the enemy's key strategy is to make your circumstances and your outer uh, realities the big danger that will kill you because he already knows he can't kill you that way. No, no, he's going to come inside and he's going to stir things in your heart that will cause words to come out of your mouth that are doubtful, doubting him, doubting the spirit, doubting the leadership, doubting uh, your world, doubting your own decisions. Those words will start spiraling out of control and he will tear you apart from the inside. The enemy will destroy us from the inside out with our words far faster than he will ever destroy us with the circumstances outside. Our words are our great vulnerability as a community. As that's what James is saying. I know you guys are under pressure, guys. I know James is dead. I know Peter is sending me notes now. I know things are tough. I know it seems overwhelming. But watch your words because they will sink us faster than any of that stuff will. That's what James is saying. He's saying we've got to be real cautious with these little words now. Because the enemy will come and take us here. Words have the power to call us off mission and the power to keep us on mission. You hear that? Words have the power to call us off mission and the power to keep us on mission. Watch. Hey, did you hear? James is dead, man. I mean, James died. Herod killed him. What does that mean? Peter seems a little off. He seems a little scared. The boldness is gone. Do you think we pushed too far? Do you think we pushed too hard? Maybe we shouldn't have shared the gospel this fast. Maybe Rome is stronger than we thought. Maybe Jesus isn't right. Maybe Jesus overestimated this. Maybe, maybe we should just settle down. Maybe we should go back to Jerusalem. Maybe we should never have done this. Maybe all of this isn't true. I mean, you, you, you know it happens like that, doesn't it? Like that, when we're suddenly doubting God and doubting what he's doing and doubting what's happening. Why? Because we're allowing our circumstances to inform our hearts and our hearts to spill out our words and our words to bring death. So what James is saying is here is stay the course. Stay on point. Stay together. Do not break down. And here's how you make sure you don't. Watch your words. Guard your heart. Because it's life and death for our community life and death for our, for our advancement of the gospel, life and death for the mission. Now God will accomplish what he's gonna accomplish with or without us, but don't you wanna be in on it? And then the second thing dawned on me is, is, is this. And when, when does your heart tend to get out of whack? 
When, when do you start thinking all sorts of crazy thoughts about doubt and discouragement and fear? I know when I do, when I'm exhausted, overwhelmed, uh, scared, and just plain spent, empty, when, I'm, when I feel that way. When I feel that way, I start thinking crazy. I tell couples all the time when they're about to have a new baby, I tell them, listen, here's the, here's the first six weeks rules of having a brand new baby, okay? Week one, really excited, a little exhausted. Week two, excited, exhausted. Week three, a little excited, very exhausted. Week four, what on earth is going on? Will this child ever sleep? Week five, who are you and why are you in my bed, man? Get out to your spouse. Week six, you never help. What's your problem? I hate you, right? I always tell people, week three, four, and five, you're so exhausted, you're so spent, your, your eyes are like huge, you haven't slept in days, your baby's screaming, and you're gonna hate your spouse. There's no reason to, you're just going to. So here's the deal. For week three, four, and five, four, five, and six in the first six weeks, anything you say between midnight and 7 a.m. to your spouse goes in a special box. It's baby talk box. You, you stick it in there. Let's just pretend all you heard was this. And you stick it in that box and you leave it there because you didn't mean anything you said. You were just totally exhausted and totally spent and you had to direct it at somebody. But isn't that true how we function? When you're spent, empty, exhausted, and tired, then your heart believes things and your words spill out and you don't think. So what do you think James is doing here? James is speaking to a church that's suddenly facing not only an immediate reality of, of sudden overwhelmingness, but an exhausted reality. And it's just getting started, folks. You should see what's about to happen in terms of persecution. James is setting a pace for what's to come, not just for what's happening. And James is saying, look, it's gonna get tiring now. It's gonna get hard now. It's gonna get exhausting now. You're gonna think thoughts like, why are we doing this? This is crazy. What was Jesus thinking? And when those thoughts come, guard your hearts because those are gonna spill out in words and when those words come, they're gonna kill us. They're gonna call us off mission. So we're back here saying, okay, great, Renault, great. If I wanna stay on mission in my personal life, I wanna stay on mission in community, I, I need to guard my heart, I need to watch my words, but how, how do I do that? I wanna do it, I don't know how. Look, James actually tells us, isn't that amazing? James finishes chapter three out this way. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So he switches from words to wisdom, but they are not separate. They are together. They are one and the same. They play off of each other. Watch. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is James saying here? He's saying as you enter into the world, there are two kinds of wisdom. There's the kind of wisdom that is yours and mine that we use for our own selfish ambitions to advance our own cause and build our own kingdom. And that is when we say this, I know better than God, I'm gonna do it my way. Now we, we, we generally as Christians don't do that in like a defiant act. We just pretend we don't know what God says. I mean, so we're not like, I hate you, I don't, I'm gonna ignore your word. No, we just kinda go like this. We're just kinda doing this and we kinda know that that says that, but that's too hard, so we'll just do this. 
And God goes, look, if you're gonna live in your own wisdom and play this out in your own way and just try to figure it out as you go, here's, here's what that is, okay? It's demonic. <laughs> he said it. It's like it's demonic. But God's wisdom brings life and peace. So what do you need to do? You need to evaluate wherever selfish ambition exists. In other words, I'm in this, for me, I want, fill in the blank, right? I want my kids just to behave. I, I got it, so do I. But in, in essence, that's because that'll make my life better. And I pretend by saying it'll make your life better in the future, which it will, but it's got no bearing now. The only bearing now is me. I hate this. So we, whether it's our kids, whether it's our stuff, whether it's our business dealings, whether it's our advancement, whether it's our social networks, whether it's what friends group we want to belong to, we constantly have things in our hearts that we kind of desire. And when we are driven by those things and we are strategic about trying to figure them out for the betterment of this, what God says is that's not the kind of wisdom you want to play around with. That's, that's unspiritual and demonic wisdom and it will lead you nowhere. Here's what you need. You need my wisdom and my wisdom is full of humility and meekness and it is a wisdom you need to go and find in my word through my spirit. And so what is James saying here? Is your heart out of whack? Are you feeling all sorts of crazy stuff inside that's spilling out of your mouth in words that are damaging? Well, welcome to planet Earth. Welcome to missional living. Welcome to stress. Peter, when he was in the courtyard with Jesus, what did he do? He denied Jesus as his leader and savior. That was Peter. The guy's like, kill me now for Jesus. He denies Christ in the courtyard. Don't you think you will too? I mean, I will. I have daily. I'm like, I don't believe Jesus anymore in some way deep inside here because I'm acting as though he doesn't exist, right? But here's what James is saying. When you feel that way, when that's going on inside and it's coming out, don't get all shameful on yourself and loathe yourself and feel discouraged. Just recognize that. See that for what it is and start going, God, I need to start really pouring truth and wisdom back in here from your word because that's the only thing that will make my heart see again, make my soul feel again the gospel truths and realities. And then out of the wellspring of that will come words of life. Now that may take three months, six months, a year to begin to affect. It's got to start here. But can I, just, can I just encourage you guys, as I have been encouraged as well by this, that James is saying, if you find yourself in the mess of words and heart issues, come to me. Start digging back into what you know is my truths and start, start speaking back to your own heart and saying, yeah, that's not true, this is true. And start building in to your heart. That's how we guard our hearts. And as you build into your heart, so the wellspring of your heart will birth words of life. So it brings us right back. Guard your hearts, watch your words. Why? Because they matter to you, they matter to your family, they matter to your biblical community, they matter to the mission, they matter to the gospel, and they matter to God. Your words matter. And you ought not to handle them like dodgeballs but like flaming spears with poison on the tips, knowing that only the gospel can redeem your words to be life-giving. So count on and stay fixed on the gospel so your words become life and are redeemed by God to bring life. Amen? Let's pray. 
God, thank you for challenging us so regularly and diligently, even in the things that we would otherwise just kind of see as a side note. God, in a war speech, words seem like an odd thing to focus on, but we see now, God, we see they're not odd at all. They are deeply powerful in every setting and they will tear us down inside faster than any outside force will. So God, help us to start being much more watchful over our words and to guard our hearts much more diligently than we have. God, forgive us for treating our words like dodgeballs and give us a clear picture, as James did, of the power and danger of our words. And I ask you, Spirit of God, that you would use the gospel in us, the good news that you have planted in us, that is constantly shaping us and informing us and making us like you, Jesus, that you would use that to filter and shape our feelings in our heart and our words out of our mouths so that those words that could be so damaging and devastating, full of evil, a world of evil itself would actually become redemptive and life-giving. And when we fail you, when we fail you, Father, with our hearts and with our words, would you protect us from shame and self-loathing and would you just simply use those as mirrors into our soul to call us back to you and back to your truth regularly so that we would come and seek your wisdom and that we would live in it and grow in it and become more like you than we ever could have if we'd lived safely and easily on this planet. Keep us in the war zone, God. Keep us brave, keep us bold, keep us strong. Keep us in the courtyard with Peter. And in those places, make our hearts strong and our words true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.